You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lelada G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is Lelada G. Joining me in the studio for the past few weeks and a couple more times is Sherry Lucille. Hey, Sherry. Hello, everybody. Hi, Lelada. So she is going to be doing the announcing for us, and I'm excited to say that I'm also joined in the studio today by my daughter, Alexandra. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, everybody. <laughs> good to have you here. And for my son, Christian. How you doing, Christian? How y'all doing? He is visiting us this week from Pierce College in Lakewood, Washington. And um, Alexandra's on vacation or spring break from her school district job. So really glad to have both of my kids here today with me. I want to start off with a quote. I promised God that if he would save me from the hellish despair of the secrets and shame of my life, I would commit myself to helping to pull other women and girls out of hell. Joining us later in the show today is Dr. Alice Belcher of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Belcher is the commissioner for the Milwaukee Commission on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. She is a member of the Milwaukee Domestic Violence Homicide Review Commission. She is the founder of Christian Woman Perspective Ministries Incorporated, a volunteer holistic faith-based community outreach program. She's a great friend to me personally and to the work of The Latest Living Room. And she'll be sharing about the event that she is helping to host for Black Woman Heal Day in Milwaukee. And today's show is going to be focused on Black Woman Heal Day. And to that end, I'm going to be starting off this afternoon sharing my own personal story of surviving childhood sexual abuse and the reasons why I started Black Woman Heal Day. (laughs) 
the Jackson Five. Oh my God, I can't listen to those old songs, Sherry. I know you know what I'm talking about. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I can't listen to those old songs without this being reminded about um, one about the time when Michael Jackson was black, and then two <laughs> being reminded about my childhood that started in Chicago, Illinois, and I can have have this one vivid memory. When I was in Chicago living on the west side, because y'all know the south side is dangerous. <laughs> Not if you're from there. <laughs> so we got west side, south side of Chicago in the house. And so I can remember I was a child. Me and my brother were in an apartment with some other kids. And we were listening to the Jackson 5. And um, this is one of my strongest and, and one of my earliest memories. I was sitting on the stool and there was a kid there. He was older than I was. And he was singing to me. And when the music stopped playing, he told me that he wanted to rape me. And I must have been about maybe three, four years old. And I don't even know why I even knew what rape was or if I knew I just knew it was something that I actually did not want him to do to me. And I went and I told my mom about the story. And she later shared that me telling her was one of the impetus to us moving from Chicago to Madison. She wanted to, I guess, and this was like the early 70s, she saw kind of the changing of the tide of the city and wanted to get us out of that dangerous place and wanted to protect me, her only daughter. And so we moved from Chicago to Madison. Probably I was about four years old. And my mother's live-in boyfriend came with us. And he probably, I think he and my mom started dating and eventually started living together when I was probably around 18 months. So my very earliest memories of a father were of him. And I was a daddy's girl. I will follow him everywhere. I loved him. Um, he spoiled me. He um, would do special things for me. And I always wanted to be with him. I was his shadow. And I can remember one afternoon, this was sometime after we moved to Madison, he had asked me to come and to take a nap with him. And I can't remember if I had taken a nap with him before. It didn't seem to shock me at the time. And so followed him, I did, into he and my mother's bedroom. And everything seemed regular and everything seemed normal until I woke up. And when I woke up that afternoon, I can remember the light was coming through the the curtains and the shade that was drawn. And I woke up and something didn't feel right. And when I woke up, I was laying on top of him. And the first thing he said when I woke up was, this is not sex. And you have to imagine for someone to say that they were doing something that seemed like it. And the first thing that he said to me after that was, don't tell anybody about this. And I was probably around six years old at the time. And I have to say that two things happened to me in that moment. The first thing was relief because I didn't understand what was going on, but I knew it was something that wasn't right. It didn't make me feel right. It made me um, afraid. And the second thing that happened in that moment was this immediate infusion of shame. At six, I felt shame. I felt embarrassed. I felt 
dirty. I felt scared. And I didn't want anyone to know. I felt immediately somehow this was my fault. That if I told my mom, she would be angry with me. If I told my other friends, they would think I was weird or different. And so in that moment, keeping that secret seemed like the best thing. And it almost seemed like a gift at the time that I could somehow in the secrecy roll back that that moment had ever happened. And I had hoped that I could go back to just being daddy's little girl and everything would be the same. Sometime after that, and I can't tell you now if it was a week, if it was a month, sometime after that, um, my stepfather, my mother, and he eventually got married. George, he, he approached me again. And the thing about secrets, and I'm sharing this story for other survivors, but I'm also sharing this story for people who love children who may be um, in a, an abusive situation right now. The thing about secrets is that it bonds the two people who are part of them. And when you're a kid or if you're a woman who's being abused or battered or any such shame that's going on, the secrecy makes you feel like you can't escape that situation. It makes you feel like you can't say no. It makes it feel like you don't have any choice because the only two people that know about it are you and the person that's abusing you. And somehow you feel entrapped into that situation. And that's what I felt. I felt like my no was taken away from me. I felt like my body was taken away from me. I felt like I no longer had the right to say, you can't touch me like that. You can't do that to me because that all was stolen on that first afternoon in the room where my mother and stepfather shared a bed and the shades were drawn to keep the secrets in. And so there would be times when I would physically fight my stepfather off me and I would threaten to tell my mom, and he wasn't the type of person, because there's some people out there who, who know him, and he's the type of person, like, if you saw him to this day, if you had a flat tire, he's the guy who would stop on the side of the road and change your tire. He's the type of guy who would give you the last $5 in his pocket, but he's also a pedophile. And he wasn't the type, and so many women I have spoken to who were abused as children, they had very, not just sexually abusive, but they have physically abusive men in their lives. So he never hit me. He never threatened to hit me. Um, he did something worse. He knew I loved him, and he knew I loved my mother. And he used that love against me to control me. So he would tell me, you know, if you tell your mother, it'll break her heart. You know, you can't tell your brother. You know, if you tell, I'll go to jail. And he knew I loved him, and I did not want that to happen. And he used the love against me. And sometimes I tell people when I share this story that sometimes I wish he had just knocked the hell out of me and then abused me. Because when he used love as a weapon against me, that was part of really helping me to believe that love and pain go together. 
And when you believe that love and pain go together, that's what you begin to expect. And if you're in a relationship where you love someone and there is no pain, you create scenarios for pain to be there because you've learned that love and pain, that they go together. And so as I was getting older, it became more and more difficult because my stepfather, George, he, he worked the second shift. And so he would come home 10, 10, 30, 11, and he would wait to make sure everybody in the house was asleep before he would come to my room, which meant that he would wake me up many nights at midnight, one, two, in the middle of the night. And I'd have to get up the next day if I had gone to sleep anyway, because after a while, the anxiety and the anticipation of being um, assaulted in your own room keeps you up at night. And so I would have to get up the next day and go to first grade class learning how to read and do arithmetic and pretend like I hadn't just been raped that night before. When I was probably around 10 years old, my grandmother, who was um, the the matriarch of our family and the firm foundation of our Christian faith, she began to talk about this Jesus person that I wanted to know. She talked about joy and peace, and I had neither of those two things, and I, and I wanted them. And I began to seek a relationship with God to find some peace in my life. And as I learned more about God and, and the Bible and his ways, I learned about adultery. And as a 10-year-old, I felt like I was committing adultery. And that was one of the things that I wanted to not have God mad at me. And that was one of the things that began to push me to open up my mouth. And so one afternoon, my stepfather asked me to go for a ride. And I knew what that meant because he would often abuse me in the car. And I was about 11 at the time, and I said no. And he kept trying to convince me to go with him that day. And I know what he had on his mind. And my mother told me sometime after that there was a look that I had on my face that day. And I would later ask her, but wasn't that look on my face for the past four or five years? So she said, look, why won't you go? And I said, I don't want to go. She says, why? And I said, because he keeps messing with me. Now, parents, I want you to hear this. And everybody out there that feels that they sit from a high place to judge people who have been sexually abused, to judge women who wait many years to report, to judge people. I I said he's been touching me. (laughs) Messing with me is what I said. Now, keep in mind that this abuse had been going on for years. And all I could say was he's been messing with me. For most of us, for many of us, what we will share is only the tip of the iceberg. There is a story beyond that story. And so I actually never meant to even share this story with anyone that I'm now sharing with you over over the air. My life was filled with such shame and despair, and I hated myself. And I knew, even at 11 years old, that if that abuse did not stop, I could not survive it. I was emotionally dying. I was spiritually dying. And I knew that I couldn't take it anymore. I knew that I couldn't live like that anymore. So I told my mom, 
and she calls him in the house and she confronted him. And parents, this is something that you should never do is confront your child with the person they are accusing. She confronted him and he lied and said it wasn't true. And somewhere within the deep most parts of my soul came a voice and said, oh, yes, it is. You know, you've been doing that. She believed me. She kicked him out. And for some time, he went and got another apartment. And when I told my mom, she asked me, do you want to call the police and report this? And she said, but now if he goes to jail, we won't have money for the family and we won't be able to survive. So on my little 11-year-old shoulders was that decision given. Sometime after that, he was gone from the house some months. He would still come and go, but he was living in another place. And my mom sat me down and she said, listen, she said, we can't afford to have two households. So George is coming home. But if he ever touches you, you let me know. And what I tell people is this. I said, perverted people do perverted things. So quite naturally, when he came back, yes, he did try to abuse me again. I would wake up with him over my bed. But something happened to me when I told it broke that secret place where only the two of us were. And it allowed me to find my voice. And I learned how to protect myself. My mother didn't protect me. My stepfather, who provided for me, provided a home and a, and a nice living. He didn't protect me. I had to learn how to protect myself. But I disappeared the essence of myself disappeared because I felt like I didn't matter. I felt like I had finally told my mother the worst thing and it didn't matter. And so that must mean that I didn't matter. And I went into this dark place within myself where I hated who I was. I hated my body as I was beginning to mature and change into a young woman. I hated my body because it was betraying me and I felt like my body was putting me at risk because I felt like my stepfather was stalking me in my own home. And um, I did everything I could not to be a growing young woman with widening hips and breasts bursting through my shirt. One night... There was a situation where we were looking for George and he disappeared. His car was outside the house and we didn't know where he was. And this had happened many, many times and we didn't know where he disappeared to. There was a corner store, Johnny's on South Madison to my South Madison folks. You remember Johnny's and he would sometimes walk up there to get a pack of cigarettes or something like that. So he never showed up. We all went to bed and it was probably 10, 11 o'clock. I had gone to sleep and I heard a noise and I woke up. And as I woke up, I saw a figure emerging out of my closet. At this time, I'm 19, and the abuse had stopped. The direct abuse stopped when I was 11. I called the period from 11 to 19 indirect sexual abuse. And I saw it was my stepfather. He had been in my closet, and he had been in there um, servicing himself. And I began to think, Okay, I may be crazy, but I wasn't wrong. I was being stalked. I was being fought. I don't know how many times he had done that. I woke up and I ran to my brother's room. At this time, he knew about the abuse. He came after him. He grabbed a hammer. And I tell people, my brother Alexander, who is a pastor here in Madison, that if he had caught him that day, his prison ministry would have been from the inside out. 
I probably throughout the next month, April is sexual assault awareness month. We'll be sharing a little bit of elements of my, of my story. Um, but I went through a very tedious healing journey and the two strongest reasons for that healing journey in my life are in the studio with me today. My daughter, Alexandra and my son, Christian, because I wanted to create a different life for my kids than I had for myself. And I knew that I couldn't just protect them from sexual abuse. I had to heal so that I didn't put my pain all over them. I'm going to be adding in a speaker today, our, our guest, Dr. Alice Belcher. Dr. Belcher, are you there? Later, how are you? I'm good, Dr. Belcher. How are you doing? I'm moved. I'm always moved by your story every time I hear it, when I've read it in your book. And as an advocate to a survivor, let me just say I'm sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Belcher. And I'm so thankful for you and people like you that help to heal people, women, children, families that have gone through abuse. And I'm very thankful for for your work and for joining me in the conversation today talking about Black Woman Heal Day and why it's important for for Black women to heal. And so... I'm going to talk just a little bit about Black Woman Healed. I'm going to ask you some questions about what you guys have going on down there in Milwaukee. Okay. So through my story, I did eventually um, write a book that Dr. Belcher referred to that's called I Can't Live Like This Anymore that talks about my childhood, talks about my healing journey, and talks about really the foundation of why I started my work. I had promised God as I said in the quote at the beginning of the show, that um, if he saved me from that pit that I was in, and at the time I was laying in my bed in a pit of despair and depression, I was contemplating suicide. And I promised God that if he saved me from that place, that I would dedicate my life to pulling other women and other girls out of the pit of hell. And I will be quite honest with you, and I kind of chuckle to myself every time I share that quote, because I didn't think he was going to do it. <laughs> so I didn't think I was going to have to do it. <laughs> he did it. Now I got to do it. And I got to talk about it and, and, and share it. I'm going to just layer in. We have a couple of calls. Um, we have Mary calling in. Hi, Mary. Hello. What an astonishingly brave person you are. I'm sorry I walked in after this had begun. I only wanted to say that I'm beginning to think this is a near universal experience for young women. Yes. And I work with a lot of young kids these days, and I'm not sure anything has changed. The first thing you learn at that age is adult women have no power. Mm-hmm. They can't and won't protect you, especially if they're financially and emotionally dependent on the man. The other thing I find is that the adult men generally hit these young girls with a predictable series of rebuttals one is nobody will believe you Mm -hmm. and i'll tell everybody that you asked me to do this you will be be severely punished if you try to report it especially when it's somebody from a good family Mm -hmm. male authority figures immediately say to you look 
something like this would ruin a man's career. Mm -hmm. That's always what's important to them. You'll ruin his reputation. They're always trying to downgrade what happened. Yes. And they'll say things like, look, everybody deserves another chance. (laughs) He didn't know that what he wasn't doing was okay. Maybe he had a little bit to drink. Right. He's your father. He's your uncle. Oh, the things they say just tear you apart. Mm-hmm. They'll say things like, look, we we both know you just wanted some attention. Mm-hmm. Or haven't you always wanted to be alone? You don't have a dad. Haven't you always really wanted attention from adult men? Wow. And you realize you're completely hamstrung. Yes. I found, too, as a person got older, the kind of things they said became even more cruel and impossible to defeat because they would say things such as, Women like you make me want to do this. Wow. I had to find out what kind of girl you were. Mm. Well, you've been acting like you wanted me to do this, so don't don't cry all innocent now. And when you spoke about hating your body, because you're always given the impression that it's something about you that makes me do this. Right. You're the one at fault here. And I remember just being simultaneously terrified. Yes. And also realizing I was completely, completely alone. Wow. Thank- I remember a girl yeah, telling me last year that the other thing that happens, I assume with good intentions, is the abuser or would-be abuser is allowed to stay in the home, especially, again, if the woman's dependent on him and the child is punished by being removed to foster care. Absolutely. Mary, I'm going to pause you right there, and I'm going to ask Dr. Belcher to um, to chime in about about that and so thank you so much, Mary, for calling in and sharing. I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate you taking the time to call in. Dr. Belcher, um, not anything uncommon that we hear Mary saying. Would you agree? I do agree. Unfortunate, unfortunately, I, I must concur with her. That is what we hear. We do um, see this uh, systematic uh, rape of young children who grew up to be, you know, adult, uh, adults who, who were victimized as children. We do see a lot of that intimidation. Um, we do see systems, Mary alluded to systems, where mm-hmm. um, the children aren't believed, right. um, which is a second rape, yes. uh, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. Because um, it, takes, it takes several, several incidences, um, Research tells us before an adult comes forward to report sexual assault, and it takes many, many more for a child to come forward and report that they are being sexually abused. So if a child comes to you and tells you that someone is sexually abusing them, touching them inappropriately, you need to hear that and you need to believe them. And you need to respond and do something. And you need to act to protect that child. But what has happened a lot, is that those parents sometimes who do come forward to protect children who report are then themselves subjected to systemic rape and abuse and not being believed. And those children are often taken. And this is another reality why the parents don't come forward. Absolutely. And so as Mary said, you know, she said this seemed like a universal thing that's going on with girls. We do realize that sexual abuse of children in particular we're talking about or the sexual assault of women is that this is not a black thing in itself um, that this happens to every race, every economic level, um, all of that. But what we what we do 
know and and the reason for the black woman heal work and focus is that there are high numbers of of girls who are being sexually abused in the black community. There was a study that was done by uh, Black Women's Blueprint that estimated mm-hmm. about 50% of black girls are sexually assaulted by the age of 18. And that Correct. when women report, it's only about one out of 15 black women who will, will report abuse. And so I saw that statistic and I've heard these things and I said, okay, here we go again, you know, trying to pathologize the black community. And this is before I really kind of did my own deep work in my family and begin to broaden my understanding of the impact of the history of sexual assault that is mm-hmm. unique to black women. Mm-hmm. Um, through the institution of slavery, where sexual Absolutely. assault was not only legal, mm-hmm. it was encouraged, it was expected, it was rewarded financially because the masters mm-hmm. were making more slaves that they could sell. They were um, increasing the value because sometimes the, the lighter slaves could go for more money. And so rape was not only expected, but it was financially profitable. Could you talk just briefly, Dr. Belcher, about historical trauma and what what is the result of that in um, the family? And I'll, I'll preface that question before you answer us with when I began doing my own personal research, I, I realized that I was abused. My mother was abused. Her mother was abused. I suspect that my great-grandmother was abused. And then my great great-grandmother was a slave and from that point on since we left the shores of Africa every black woman was sexually assaulted and that she didn't own her body and what she could do with it and I realized that every black woman in my lineage since Africa and arriving here had been sexually assaulted. What is the impact of that kind of sexual trauma that I soon learned wasn't just my story, but when you look at slavery, that when you get to slavery, that is the same story for every black woman that is descendant of a slave in the U.S., in Cuba, in Dominican Republic, in um, Puerto Rico, through the islands, Brazil, etc., Exactly, Lelita. Everything that you said is is correct. When you when you the, the when it comes to black women and the the rape of black women, um, particularly we're talking about the U.S., it does go back to slavery. It is rooted in slavery. We have an entire economic system that that this country enjoys today that was built upon, among other things, of slavery was built upon the economics of raping black women, mm-hmm. um, as you mentioned, to produce um, more slaves that they could sell economically, uh, more valued slaves, mulatto slaves that they could sell economically. Um, and, and that is a fact, and we need to right. own that as a, as a country and embrace that. The other thing that we continue to see um, that has been influenced by slavery is the intrafamily uh, rape of black women and girls. Um, it was it, during that period of slavery, uh, women were uh, forced to have sex not only with their uh, masters, but with uh, other men, black men, other slaves. And some of those slaves were their sons. Yes. Uh, you need to and, just and pause there was. for a minute. Yes. That because of the the Mandingo blood that was really 
um, praise that they could breed strong slaves from that. They would actually have siblings breed and they would sometimes have mothers breed with their own sons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, so that has influenced, uh, that's a carryover to a a lot of what we're seeing. Um, I won't use that term, you know, that, that it's a term that you hear in the world. I'll just use the acronym MF. And that's where that term comes from. Actually, from that was actually happening. No way. Yes, that's where that, that that term dates back to that. I you never don't knew want that. to say that, and you don't ever want to say things like that. Oh my yeah. God! No, I um, can't say that uh, anymore. Please don't say that on well. any level, but particularly <laughs> the root of it. Oh my God! Yes. So if you if you if you if you just look at the history of slavery and how it continues to influence what we're seeing today, mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier too about the account of rape. Uh, one in what for every one white woman that reports her being raped, four four do not. For every black woman who reports being raped, fifteen do not. Okay, right. so there's this huge non-reporting of rape, and a lot of the the rape of black women is not stranger. Right. You know that's what we're talking about. It's right. it's, it's usually in their own home. And Dr. Belcher, uh, that's yeah. one reason why I started off the story talking about this young man who had threatened to rape me when I was in Chicago that my mother went through extreme ends to protect me from rapists outside the home. Mm. It was the rapists in my home that she did not protect me from. Correct. Correct. And, you know, if you look at it, you know what, I, I'm willing to, well, let me just share it this way. A lot of the women that um, we have ministered to and uh, advocated for and cried with over since 1998 a lot of them have been abused mothers themselves. I'm, I'm talking to right. two and three generations of women who were sexually assaulted as girls in their homes, some of them as young as and still in diapers, who grew up with their mothers saying, keep it in the family, keep it between right. us. Right. Don't tell nobody. Don't put those people in my business or we're going to lose this, we're going to lose that, or just took it as that's just the norm. Right. I think in the movie A Color Purple, we heard – um, one character said, girl, child ain't safe in a house full of men. Yes, I'm going to pause you right meant. there. Yes. If you're just joining us on A Public Affair, I'm Lelita G, your host, and we're talking with Dr. Belcher of Christian Woman Perspective in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Do you have a question for myself or for Dr. Belcher? Please give us a call at 608-256-2001 or toll free at 866 899-WORT. I want to honor a comment that came in over the line where someone wanted me to mention about sexual assault in immigrant communities. And um, though our focus today is on Black Woman Hill, we realize that immigrant communities are very, very vulnerable to sexual assault, sexual abuse, domestic violence, because the abuser not only uses every other tool, but they also use their immigration status to control them and to keep them from from calling the police. And it makes them believe that if they report that they'll be the one who is deported and in trouble. And I I will tell you right now, I don't know enough about immigrant law to speak to it, but my understanding, if any woman out there who is um, 
has immigration status, that there is some protection. And Dr. Belcher, you may know about that um, under the law if someone who is an immigrant status who reports a violent crime. Well, there are a lot of resources that you can certainly go to with some of those questions. If mm-hmm. you're going through a domestic violence situation or and or sexual assault situation and you are have a, a questioning immigration status, I would reach out to some of the state agencies, start there if you're on a statewide level. Um, the um, In domestic violence, Wisconsin, here in Madison, Wisconsin, and then there's also the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Uh, here also in Madison, Wisconsin, where I'm also the the vice president of the board for that coalition. And then, of course, um, they can direct you further. Great advice. So, And you can call anonymously and get some information to to know what your options are. And so um, the other thing to speak towards when we're talking about the underreporting of black women is that we are also very underrepresented in agencies that service survivors. And so for black women who feel like they need to heal within a cultural context, (laughs) they don't have the opportunity. And when I say that, I want to just clarify by saying in the state of Wisconsin, we have often gone without any black sexual assault advocates. And over the past seven to 10 years, when I've been working in this field directly, I've never known more than two to be at any county level mm-hmm. or statewide at any time. Usually it's one, mm-hmm. often it's zero. And to put that into context for our listeners yes. throughout the state, there are Native American sexual assault advocates. There are mm-hmm. Hmong sexual assault advocates. There are Latino and Spanish-speaking sexual assault advocates. There are LGBTQ sexual assault advocates. Yes. So there is an awareness that culture yes. and context is important. It's just not been prioritized for black women. And yes. that was the impetus to me starting Black Woman Hill is just seeing that there was no specific services for us and that led to our secrecy and led to our pain and led to our, our unhealing. Um, so with that, I started black woman heal going throughout the state of Wisconsin and going throughout the Afro Latino world, still going on my world tour of that and sharing the ideas of healing and our need for healing because of our shared story, our shared history and at some point, I decided to do Black Woman Hill Day, probably because I'm crazy and a visionary and always trying to do something. <laughs> but I started Black Woman Hill Day with the goals of increasing the awareness in the black community regarding the issues of sexual abuse, because even being a black woman, I wasn't aware of the historical impact of sexual abuse in our community. I want to also to inspire people to do their part in helping to prevent sexual abuse in families and communities and places of faith, as well as intervene if you know it has started. And then thirdly, to ignite survivors to go on a personal healing journey. And it's never, it's never too late to heal. And with the vision of Black Woman Heal Day, I recruit black women across the U.S. to host events to gather with sisters and cousins and daughters to create safe spaces where we can share our stories, where we can share healing, share encouragement. And we, our first year was 2015 and we had 40 states join us and we had about 12 countries. And so we continue to grow and share. And I'm excited that um, Milwaukee is joining us in a big way. Dr. Belcher, what are you all doing down there in Milwaukee? 
Oh, we are um, coordinating and hosting the first Milwaukee County Black Woman Hill Day, which uh, will be every April 1st. (laughs) Yes. Oh, we are excited. This event is designed to bring the community together. It's designed as a one tangible day of healing uh, to begin that healing process for black women and girls who suffered sexual assault. It's a healing event with the goal of beginning the process of healing for black women through a culturally sensitive connection between the attendees using the cultural norms of black people, their spirituality, song, dance. Come on. Amen. Yes. So, and we are so excited to uh, provide for these attendees access also to resources and the inspiration they need to know that they have the courage to heal and how to tap into those healing resources that they themselves have deep within them. Yes. You know, these same resources that we talked about that came with them from the continent, you know, them saltwater Africans, they brought it with them. Yes. They brought it through the Middle Passage. It enabled them to survive hundreds of years of slavery and oppression and sexual assault. I know that's right. Their spirituality, not religion, their spirituality. Yes. That God that's in them. You understand? Yes, ma'am. The culture of who they are. Yes. Not what has been imposed upon them through assimilation and neglect. Like you said earlier, black women not being made a priority, mm-hmm. not being valued. But this event is on purpose. We are on purpose wow. in the process for healing of black women who have been sexually assaulted and children in the city of Milwaukee, in Milwaukee County. I'm so excited. That is fabulous. That is fabulous. Yes, we're excited. Yes, and I love that you speak about what we brought with us from Africa that has given us the ability to sustain through um, the decades and, and centuries of abuse, you know, that, that helps us to hold on. You know, I've been watching, I'm a, I'm a Netflix fanatic and I've been binge watching, um, Celia, the life story about Celia Cruz. And what I learned in watching that was that salsa music, which I love salsa music is the foundation is the African piece that has been combined with other music traditions. And I said, no wonder that music always Mm -hmm. moved me like that. Them (laughs) drums and rhythm, because you can always hear when Mother Africa is calling you home (laughs) through the beats, you know, and that same beat does beat through our hearts and through our soul to give us the sustainability. Um, So I'm so thrilled that Milwaukee is joining in such a powerful way. And we're still recruiting people from coast to coast to host events from around the world, throughout the African diaspora to host events. And what I try to get people to know is that like the great event that they are hosting in Milwaukee, that is not expected of every city, every person, that even if you get together with your sisters and your cousins and and folks in your family, go to a coffee shop or in someone's living room um, to talk and to share and to create that safe space. Yes, yes, absolutely, Lolita. Um, everyone needs to do an each one, what, what, what I like to call the each one, reach one, teach one. I know, that's it's right. Time, yes, we need to begin to have the conversations and not be afraid to, to have them. I admire the fact, that even you have, even today, you have your children there. They yes. know the story. Yes. Because it's in our silence that we stay <laughs> trapped in this situation. Oh, yes. We have to break that silence and speak about it and, and, and talk about it through all the colors of who we are and, 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 and not be afraid and be ashamed because it's not our, our, our shame. That's right. Uh, as a victim, it's not your shame. That's right. It's not your fault. It's the shame of who did it. 
That's right. That's, That's right. And shame on them. It's a shame on a person shame who did it. And it's a shame on the people who look the other way because that's way. that's their shame, too. So Black Woman Heal Day is really about helping us to know that we can make ourselves as black women our own priority. We've waited yeah. for the white women's feminist movement. We've waited for the civil rights movement. We've waited for so many things to make space for us and now it's time for us to make space for ourselves that was a good conversation and look we mean this thing we are not playing we are committed to defending black girls and look we want you to get involved Please visit Lalata.org to explore the work that we are doing to defend black girls to be safe wherever they are. And look, while you're there, please sign up for our mailing list so that you will not miss one single fearless conversation.